Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 80, and a happy Academy Awards season to you and yours. Thank you for noticing the pop-up alert or the social media post or whatever way you learned of the existence of this latest episode and then deciding to give that little triangle that points to the right a tap in order to play or download this show. Whether it's your first time listening or your 80th, you're taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, so much obliged. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. With Oscar campaigning in full swing and awards season well underway, there have been in entertainment news the usual helpings of awkward moments. Perhaps you saw Riz Ahmed and Allison Williams officially announce this year's crop of nominees to the press in the early hours of Tuesday, January 24. I thought that I loved this guy after his Oscar nomination for lead actor two years ago for The Sound of Metal, not to mention his win last year for live-action short film for The Long Goodbye. His endearingly delightful reaction when he read off the nominees for Best Animated Short Films, when he came to the title, My Year of Dicks, deserves an Oscar of its own for his witty professionalism. What the hell? Hurl yet another award at him for successfully getting through the title of another nominee. An ostrich told me the world is fake, and I think I believe it. Right. And along with awkward moments such as these, we've also had the usual helpings of scandals and controversies, with the most public probably being the Academy's investigation into the campaign strategies of some Hollywood A-listers, notably Frances Fisher, to try to get a virtually unknown actress by the name of Andrea Riseborough onto the shortlist for the little-seen film To Leslie. Hatty helpings of awkwardness and scandal all around, but we also have, as usual, a heaping side dish of revised Oscar statistics. For example, this is the first time that all five leading actor nominees have never been nominated before since 1935. Clark Gable won that year for 1934's It Happened One Night, edging out his two co-nominees, William Powell and Frank Morgan. Morgan, you may know, is most famous for playing the Wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Overall, actually, out of the 20 acting nominees from all four categories combined, 16 of them are first-timers. The only previous nominees are Kate Blanchett, who's up for Ty, Judd Hirsch, who's up for The Fablemans, Angela Bassett, who's being recognized for her swan song in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Michelle Williams, who's up also for The Fablemans. And of these four previous nominees, the only one who's ever won is Kate Blanchett, who got supporting actress for 2004's The Aviator, and leading for 2013's Blue Jasmine. This is Blanchett's eighth nomination, which ties her with Glenn Close, Geraldine Page, and Judi Dench for fourth place. Betty Davis earned ten nominations over the course of her career, Katharine Hepburn 12, and Meryl Streep sits on top of the nomination certificates with 21. Steven Spielberg now has his ninth nomination, tying him with Martin Scorsese, but William Wyler is still the nomination champ at 12 career nods. So exciting times for all the nominees. And for us plebeians who are on par with floor dust, we get our yucks by predicting, strategizing, rooting for, rooting against, and everything else in between before Hollywood's big night. Personally, I like to think of it as constructive hysteria. The first Academy Awards was all the way back in May 1929, and some of the best picture winners over the years deserve a rewatch, but before you scoff and say, old movies, my ears doth deceive me. How can you suggest such a pointless idea? Black and white. Movie stars long gone. There's no way I can hang on. I can't. I just can't. I... I... No! Allow me to peel you off the ceiling, my fellow cinephile, and offer you inspiration and a fresh perspective, courtesy of the wise words of Oscar recipient Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. 
In this run of Oscar themed episodes, we're going to take a look at one of this year's nominees. It could be from any category, ranging from musical score, costume design, or acting, to screenplay, visual effects, or directing. And that nominee will be paired up with a previous nominee or winner that's linked to it in some way. This time around, the spotlight is shining on first-time Best Leading Actress contender Anna de Amis, nominated for her portrayal of Marilyn Monroe in the Netflix film Blonde. Interestingly enough, the other Best Leading Actress candidate we're looking at is Michelle Williams, who is up for her role as Mitzi Fableman in the Steven Spielberg-directed The Fablemans. It's her fifth Academy Award nomination, and what's interesting is that her third nomination, back in early 2012, was for her portrayal of Marilyn Monroe in 2011's My Week with Marilyn. Two performances, one real-life icon, two Oscar nominations, and that's a lot of blonde. We'll follow the usual format for an episode where there isn't a guess. Spoiler-free plot setups, meaning the premise of both films, how they begin. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. One brief side note, if you haven't seen the U.S. weather reports lately, it's been record-setting blasts of cold fronts. I mean, I've been using the ice cube trays as a heating pad. And because I'm a masochist, I went skiing with my son this past weekend. As I was going down the mountain, I was thinking about this episode at one point, and subsequently, a Marilyn Monroe song stubbornly remained stuck in my head for at least two hours. Which ditty was it? We're having a heat wave. I actually have a cold right now, so forgive me if my voice is sounding a little husky. But let's begin by sexily slinking our way over to the 2022 Netflix film Blonde, written and directed by Andrew Dominic, and based on the novel by Joyce Carol Oates. Anna de Amis has the film's only Oscar nomination as Marilyn Monroe, the salacious stimulant herself. Blonde premiered in Italy at the Venice Film Festival on September 8, 2022, then went into limited release in theaters in the U.S., the U.K., and Ireland to qualify for Oscar consideration before premiering worldwide on Netflix on September 28th. It's a very surreal, highly imaginative film that's not really the go-to if you're looking to learn more about the real woman behind the smile and the figure and the slinky dresses and the glamour. I've said before that I'm all for artistic expression and all, but what we get here is mostly a motley arrangement of sequences throughout Monroe's life, the vast majority of them highly fictionalized, and in some cases completely pulled out of writer and director Andrew Dominic's ass, to a pretty mixed effect. Some of the drama plays out like a Lifetime TV movie, while some of it truly is effectively disturbing, especially the scenes with her as a little girl traumatized by witnessing her mentally unstable mother spiral out of control and other scenes of her being exploited, abused, and degraded before and during her career as a movie star. Personal opinion only, but the risk with fictionalized and dramatized stories that take it to this disturbingly melodramatic extent really sullies the memory of the life of the person in question, especially for those audiences who take everything at face value and don't bother to find out what was fact and what was fiction. As the film opens to the sounds of pensive music playing, according to the subtitles it's pensive at least, we have a series of flashing images, all in black and white, of spotlight operators, Marilyn Monroe twirling in slow motion for an audience, and choral voices sounding like a dramatical refrigerator as the title card reads, Los Angeles 1933. Cut to a close-up of a little girl, Marilyn as a child, or should I say Norma Jean Mortensen, her real name, played by Lily Fisher. She's sitting in the passenger seat of a car while her mother Gladys, played by Julianne Nicholson, is behind the wheel. 
Gladys tells her that she has a birthday surprise for her little girl, and Norma Jean lights up. Then we see Gladys leading Norma Jean into a room, covering her eyes for the big reveal. She removes her hand and says, Norma Jean, look, that man is your father. And she points to a framed photo of a man on the wall above the bed. She says that his name is a beautiful and important name, but that she cannot utter it. She takes the photo off the wall, holds it up for Norma Jean to see, and when the girl reaches to touch it, Gladys sharply rebukes her. No! No one must know that you've seen this. There are complications in both our lives. When you were born, your father was far away. He's at a great distance, even now, and I worry for his safety. But in our hearts, we're husband and wife. The girl asks, but where is he? Gladys is off the hook answering that question because the phone then conveniently rings, and we get a rapid zoom in on the phone itself. Cut to Gladys with a cigarette limply dangling from her mouth as she's shakily holding a lit match and trying to light Norma Jean's birthday cake. She asks her daughter if the room is shaking. She somehow manages to bring the cake to the table. She puts it in front of Norma Jean's smiling face. Gladys then sits across from her and pours herself a drink. A disheartening visual that speaks a thousand words about the many problems that this unstable woman has. Cut to Norma Jean lying on the bed as Gladys puts a folded towel under her so she won't drool on the cover, she says. She reminds her that when she was a baby, she used to sleep in the dresser drawer because they were so poor they couldn't afford a crib. Then Gladys slowly plays Fur Elise on the piano, while the photo of the man said to be Norma Jean's father pulls a Harry Potter postcard trick and comes to life with his face and his mouth moving as his voice says, sweetly and softly, I love you, Norma Jean, and one day I will return to Los Angeles to claim you. After a series of violent events, Norma Jean is brought to an orphanage. She's screaming and crying, insisting that she's not an orphan, that her father promised that he'd be coming back for her. Her mother is out of the picture because she's had a breakdown and is staying in a mental hospital. Then suddenly we have a montage of her on magazine covers, posing for pinup posters, and in one particularly gruesome moment, a studio executive taking advantage of her in his office and a shot of her leaving in tears afterwards. Who's to say what really did, and what really did not happen, and in what order? And it makes for some moments for Ana de Amis to show her acting chops, even if the film overall is pretty shallow. I mean, I've stepped in deeper puddles. We see real footage of her brief appearance in 1950's All About Eve, and recreations of her audition for the thriller Don't Bother to Knock. The crassness of the studio executives takes a front seat in these sequences, complete with iris shots zoning in on her rear end as crude comments about her are made. I have torn feelings about that. Is it telling her story in the broad sweeping strokes? Either way, if Monroe in real life did suffer all of the indignities that this film brings to the table, then this movie Blonde is, at best, a harrowing two hours and 47 minutes worth of giving us a voyeuristic look into the causes of Marilyn's lifelong miseries. If that's your cup of tea, tune in. Time now to head over to the great nation of England, circa 1956, when Marilyn Monroe teamed up with Laurence Olivier for a fluffy piece of moviedom called The Prince and the Showgirl. This was the first film that she made under the banner of her own production company, and the only one that she made outside of the U.S. The making of The Prince and the Showgirl serves as the backdrop for 2011's My Week with Marilyn. In fact, as My Week with Marilyn opens, the title card reads, In 1956, at the height of her career, Marilyn Monroe went to England to make a film with Sir Lawrence Olivier. While there, she met a young man named Colin Clack, who wrote a diary about the making of the film. This is their true story. My Week with Marilyn is really a showcase for the intelligent and thoughtful acting that Michelle Williams always brings to the screen. 
It played at a number of film festivals in the U.S. and the U.K. throughout the fall of 2011 before opening in the U.K. and Ireland on November 25th, Greece on the 22nd, and then the U.S. on the 23rd. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, Michelle Williams for Best Leading Actress and Kenneth Branagh as Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Olivier, but the Oscars would go to Meryl Streep for playing Margaret Thatcher in The Iron Lady and Christopher Plummer for his role in the independent film Beginners. After the title card that I just mentioned, the film opens with the screen almost entirely engulfed in darkness. The solitary figure of Monroe has her back to the camera from a distance, as a spotlight suddenly flips on and highlights her as she quickly turns to face front and begins belting out the song, When Love Goes Wrong, Nothing Goes Right, from Monroe's film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, co-starring Jane Russell. This is Williams doing her own singing, by the way. She then segues into, We're Having a Heat Wave, and if I'm to be honest, Michelle Williams really nails it. She doesn't look like Marilyn per se, but she captures the essence of her to a T. Yes, you can see Michelle Williams' face throughout the performance, but her aura is almost frighteningly Marilyn. As the singing medley continues, we see Colin Clack, played by Eddie Redmayne, sitting in a movie theater audience and watching the whole number unfold on the screen in front of him. He's smiling and utterly taken in by her. The medley ends, the title My Week with Marilyn suddenly appears, and then we cut to the exterior of a countryside estate as his voiceover narration begins. He says, Everyone remembers their first job. This is the story of mine. I was the youngest in a family of overachievers. My father was a world-famous art historian, and my brother was ahead of me in everything. I was always the disappointment. I found my solace in a small cinema I went to every Thursday night. Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Laurence Olivier, these were my heroes. I wanted to be a part of their world. When I was 23, I got my chance. Colin then walks into a room and tells his father, played by Pip Torrance, that he's leaving for his job interview in London. His stern, no-nonsense father dismisses Colin's film career aspirations as nothing more than something for Colin to get out of his system before growing up and settling down for real work. He says as much as he looks at Colin like he's ready to squeeze the cider out of his Adam's apple. His mother, played by Geraldine Somerville, is cut from the same cloth, telling Colin sarcastically that she's sure he'll be a famous film director in no time. Colin's voiceover continues, I had everything to prove to my family, but more to prove to myself. Like every young man, I had to make my own way, so I decided to leave home and join the circus. And he says this as he rings the bell of 144 Piccadilly, the home base of Laurence Olivier Productions, according to the sign next to the door. Cut to a montage of him insisting to Hugh Percival, played by Michael Kitchen, that he'll continue haunting the studios until he gets a job on the production side of things. The receptionist, Vanessa, played by Miranda Rayson, takes advantage of Colin's determination and has him answering the phones for her while she's off doing whatever, maybe getting her nose hairs plucked, I don't know. But Mr. Percival doesn't seem to care. He just tells Colin that he needs the unlisted number for English playwright Noel Coward. Cut to the number, written on a piece of paper, proudly slid across Mr. Percival's desk, while Colin stands there grinning happier than a pig in shit. Enter Laurence Olivier himself, played by Kenneth Branagh, and his wife, Oscar-winning actress Vivian Lee, played by Julia Ormond. Olivier crabs about how Marilyn Monroe is impossible to get on the phone since she spends the entire day asleep. He says hello to Colin and asks him his name again, implying they've met and some time has passed. Vivian Lee tells her husband, Do you remember Colin? You met him at a party. Olivier says, Of course. What are you doing here? 
Colin eagerly replies, You said there might be a job on your film. Olivier gives Colin a pack of cigarettes, tells him to keep the whole thing, and we see in a brief close-up that Olivier strokes his ego with his cigs because the pack has his name imprinted all over it. Olivier goes on to say that there won't be a film until Miss Monroe gets her splendid posterior out of bed. Vivian throws in her two cents, tells her husband that he has to give Colin a job, that he promised, and then asks Vanessa, isn't Colin gorgeous? So Colin lands a job as a production assistant on the movie Monroe is set to star in. The working title was The Sleeping Prince, but it eventually became The Prince and the Showgirl. Colin narrates that Marilyn was to play a naive American showgirl called Elsie Marina, who was seduced by an Eastern European prince, played by Olivier. It was, he says, the lightest of comedies. Colin is privy to executives discussing how Marilyn indulges in alcohol, pills, and sleeping in. And then she makes her entrance with a capital E. She and her new playwright husband, Arthur Miller, disembark a TWA plane. Remember that, airline? In grandiose slow motion. And she shows that she knows how to play the game when it comes to being a chama with the press. They ask her if she can spell the name of the character she'll play, and she replies coyly, Yes, can you? They ask her if it's true she goes to sleep wearing nothing but perfume. And she says, Darling, if I'm in England, let's just say I sleep in nothing but Yardley's lavender. The flashbulbs go off, the all-male press gets off, and there's a very telling close-up of her winking at the horny horde. Next, Vivian Lee tells Colin that she's 43 and no one will love her for very much longer. She says that her husband is after Marilyn. But Colin says that Marilyn and Arthur Miller have only been married for three weeks. She tells him not to be such a boy, and asks him to tell her if anything untoward happens between Olivier and Marilyn. Then, cut to the cast of The Prince and the Showgirl, preparing for the read-through of the script. Marilyn is a bundle of nerves and seems to be at the end of a rapidly fraying rope already. The pressures of work and intimidation by Olivier's reputation have her shaking like a pimp in a cathedral. So her acting coach, Paula Strasberg, played by Zoe Wanamaker, is at her side 24-7, including at the read-through. This creates friction as a power struggle between Strasberg and Olivier, who as both the film's leading man and director, threatens to send Marilyn to a state of utter exhaustion. After Olivier's initially inviting smile turns into a contemptuous sneer, he and Marilyn film a scene with Lady Sybil Thorndike, played by Dame Judi Dench, who's as supportive and as sweet with Marilyn as it gets. Marilyn forgets a line here, and steps on one of Thorndike's lines there. And when the scene is done, Thorndike kindly walks up to Marilyn and asks her to join the fatigue later so that they can run lines together. At my great age, she says, it's difficult for them to stick in my memory. Marilyn is humbled and flattered and accepts. But when she and Paula are walking arm and arm down the hall back to her dressing room, Marilyn's convinced that Olivier is disappointed in her. Paula does her best to convince her that she was great and to have faith in her talents. Colin is stealthily walking behind them and makes his way over to compliment Marilyn personally. She thanks him. Paula looks at him suspiciously, protectively takes Marilyn by the arm again, and off the two of them go, leaving Colin staring after Marilyn, looking like a smitten jackass. This is at the 25-minute mark of the film, so what say we leave Colin behind in that hallway to be alone with his thoughts and pivot towards the behind-the-scenes fun facts for both Blonde and My Week with Marilyn? 
As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment there may be spoilers, so proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in both films, potentially including their endings. So, spoiler alert, now. Number 5. The entire cast and crew of the film Blonde went to Marilyn Monroe's grave to, quote, ask for permission to make the Netflix exclusive. Ana de Amis mentions, quote, We got this big card and everyone in the crew wrote a message to her. Then we went to the cemetery and put it on her grave. We were asking for permission in a way. Everyone felt a huge responsibility and we were very aware of the side of the story we were going to tell. The story of Norma Jean, the person behind this character, Marilyn Monroe. Who was she really? End quote. Number four. Okay, stay with me here for this one. 1980s boxing film Raging Bull, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro, is widely regarded as one of the best sports movies ever made. But the director of Blonde, Andrew Dominic, said that Raging Bull was a big influence on his film, explaining, quote, The whole idea of Blonde was to detail a childhood drama and then show the way in which that drama splits the adults into a public and private self, end quote. Dominic also said that Citizen Kane was a huge influence as well, and that Blonde is, quote, like Citizen Kane and Raging Bull had a baby daughter, end quote. Number three. Casting could have beens. Blonde spent about ten years in development hell, with different people attached to the project at different points in time. Naomi Watts was announced to star as Monroe as far back as 2012, when Andrew Dominic, according to ScreenRant.com, envisioned Blonde as, quote, an emotional nightmare fairy tale, end quote. The movie was unable at the time to get any funding from any studio, so Naomi Watts eventually left and went on to do other things. Two years later, in 2014, Jessica Chastain signed on to replace her. But, once more, the project struggled financially to get off the ground, so Chastain left as well. Number two. According to Collider, Dominic wanted Blonde to be light on spoken dialogue. He said that it would be, quote, a little more accessible than what I've done before, end quote, even though the film, quote, has very little dialogue in it, end quote, adding that he is, quote, really excited about doing a movie that's an avalanche of images and events, end quote. Interestingly, in the same report, Dominic also claimed that Blonde would be one of the ten best films ever made. It is now showered with eight Razzie nominations, including Worst Picture, Worst Director and Worst Screenplay, both for Dominic, and two Worst Supporting Actor nominations for Evan Williams, who plays Edward G. Robinson's son, Eddie Robinson Jr., and Xavier Samuels, who plays Charlie Chaplin's son, Cass Chaplin. And number one for Blonde. The nudity-drenched three-way relationship, or thruple, between the film's version of Marilyn Monroe and Eddie Robinson Jr. and Cass Chaplin was largely conjured up in the imagination of the writer and director. Neither Chaplin nor Robinson were known to be gay or bisexual in real life, let alone involved with each other. There is no evidence that Eddie Robinson Jr. was ever more than simply an acquaintance of Monroe's, although rumors of a brief affair between her and Cass Chaplin were confirmed by Chaplin himself in his memoir, My Father, Charlie Chaplin, where he wrote, quote, One of the young girls I had a relationship with at this time, around 1947, was the same age as I, 21. 
an attractive, petite, unknown movie actress named Nara Jean Doherty, who was under contract at 20th Century Fox, end quote. Doherty was the last name of Marilyn Monroe's first husband, a name she kept after they split up. However, Chaplin went on to recall, quote, From a professional point of view, it was absolutely necessary for her to be seen together with all kinds of movie stars to get the papers interested in giving her a mention. The result was an estrangement between us, and I have not seen her for several years, end quote. Monroe and Robinson crossed paths in real life again when he had a small role as a gangster in 1959's Some Like It Hot. But 2022's Blonde leaves that out entirely and implies that the only contact they had with each other after ending their relationship was through mail. One more fact versus fiction piece. According to the film, Eddie Robinson called Marilyn shortly before her death to tell her that Cass Chaplin had died, even though in reality, Chaplin outlived Monroe by nearly six years. As for my week with Marilyn fun facts, try these on for size. Number five. In the film... Gone with the Wind actress Vivian Lee worries that her husband, Lawrence Olivier, played by Kenneth Branagh, will fall prey to Monroe's charisma. Instead, from the first day, Olivier and Monroe are loathsome to each other's eyes. Olivier detests her unreliability, her emotional fragility, and her attempts to be a method actor. She finds him vain and mean-spirited. And you know something? They were probably both right. This is all based on fact. Jack Cardiff, who was the cinematographer on the real film The Prince and the Showgirl, confirmed that even 25 years after that film, Olivier had this to say about Monroe. Quote, she was a bitch, end quote. Number four. If we're talking about historical accuracy, then we have to keep in mind that the only source of information for the alleged romance between Clark and Monroe is Clark's diary. At the film's climax, she overdoses on pills, locks herself in her bedroom, and collapses. He climbs in through the window, but refuses to open the door to her worried friends, insisting that he is the best person to look after her, and that he'll gallantly sleep on the sofa so that she will not be alone overnight. Here he comes to save the day. He's apparently seen one too many Mighty Mouse cartoons. But then he has the wontons to get into bed with her when she's as incoherent and as out of it as she possibly could be, as he proceeds to tell her that he loves her. According to him, that's as far as it went, but Monroe cannot remember anything the next morning. So you've only got his word for it. Clark's diary and the movie present this as a shining knight on horseback kind of scenario, but in the context of 2023, sorry stud, but no dice. Number three. In 1995, more than 30 years after Monroe's death, Clark published The Prince, The Showgirl, and Me an account of his involvement with the film that mentions nothing about any romance with her. But five years later, in 2000, he wrote the decidedly more salacious follow-up, My Week with Marilyn. His explanation was that for the nine days during filming The Prince and the Showgirl, when he became close to her, he was so busy that he had made no entries in his diary. It was after The Prince and the Showgirl wrapped that he first told of his full experience to a friend in a letter, and apparently he decided he was only ready to share those more intimate details in his 2000 book. He had built a career in TV and documentary films and passed away in 2002. Michelle Williams, who spent months watching Monroe's films and reading biographies on her to prepare for the role, said that she found Clack to be, quote, an unreliable narrator, end quote. <laughs> Number two. Many people who knew Monroe personally doubt that there was a romantic relationship between her and Clark, 
and some even claim the filmmakers declined the opportunity to verify the authenticity of the memoirs. Amy Green, the widow of Milton Green, a photographer who is vice president of Monroe's production company, said, quote, I was there every day, and I knew what was happening. Clark was on the set, and he was a gopher. Hey, I need a cup of coffee, or whatever. No one regarded him as anything but a gopher. End quote. And the Green's son Joshua, who handles his late father's archives, added, quote, It's a complete lie. It's a fantasy. He was a fourth-rate water boy. End quote. Jonathan Green said he contacted BBC Films, the production company behind My Week with Marilyn, to offer up his father's documents and photographs before production began, but that he was ignored. He said, quote, There was clearly no interest in trying to make a real movie based on the situation. Don't sit there and say that this is based on a true story and not have the decency to confirm that your story is true by going to people that are still alive. End quote. Number one. But director Simon Curtis and screenwriter Adrian Hodges denied they were ever approached by Green's relatives. Curtis said, quote, The fact that these books were in the public arena and had been cherished by people over the years gave me confidence. I have no reason to doubt Colin's version. Who is to say what happened in those bedrooms on those nights? End quote. Screenwriter Hodges adds, quote, What we weren't making was an investigation of whether Colin's story was true. We were telling his account of it. That's the magical aspect of it. And even so, he did insist it was true. End quote. Shall we sashay our way over to the results of this week's online poll? The question for this episode, number 80, asks you which of these two Oscar-nominated portrayals of Marilyn Monroe you think captured Marilyn's look more. Michelle Williams, Ana de Amis, neither came close, or both did it in their own way. On the Facebook group Silver Screeners, there were four votes for Michelle Williams, two for Ana de Amis, and three for Neither Comes Close. And on Twitter, 14 votes came in, with 50% for Michelle Williams, 36% for Ana de Amis, and 14% for the option they both do in their own way. So that means that five-time Oscar nominee Michelle Williams takes the cake as the walking aphrodisiac. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Miss President, happy birthday to you. Thanks so much to everyone who voted. As I say every time, these polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode, so thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at filmbuff1974 as well as Instagram at frankmandosa1974, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. One more thing before we close out, the listener trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. The more listeners who take a crack at it, the better. I announce the first name and last initial of anyone who sends in a response, regardless of whether your answer is right or wrong. And in addition to a shout-out in the next episode, if you provide your email, you'll get a movie-related meme sent with a personalized greeting. 
and give any trivia question from any Silver Screeners episode a go. You could be listening to episode 25, 45, 75. It is never too late. You'll get your meme and shout out no matter how recent or far back the question is. And if you're a creator, if you write music, design websites, if you write, if you podcast, if you YouTube, anything, I gotcha. Always happy to give your stuff a shout out because people help people and that is all there is to it in this world. So last time we kicked off this Oscar series with a look at 2022's Elvis and 2018's Bohemian Rhapsody. I made a reference to the 1991 film The Doors, which starred Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. And the question was, name the two-time Oscar-winning director of 1986's Platoon, 1989's Born on the Fourth of July, 1991's JFK, and 1991's The Doors. And the answer is... Oliver Stone. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following in no particular order. Mike W., who co-hosted with me the local cable movie review program called Real Life, R-E-E-L, for a few years. Good to hear from you, Mike, and let's talk Oscar predictions. And we got my friend Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, who coincidentally just released an episode on that Alfred Hitchcock classic. You don't want to miss that one. Another return vector is Liz M., my sister-in-law, who sets these questions up and knocks them down like so much Annie Oakley. And there is Stu from the Stu and Al pod, the first person I ever connected with in the context of podcasting. Stu, you're a gentleman. He says that he still has to see JFK, but finding a spare three and a half hours is the stumbling block. Truer words but never spoken, my friend. Yet another shout-out to the great Mary C., a longtime regular listener and trivia player. Your participation is always appreciated, Mary. As is that of return Victor Ed R., a member of the Facebook group Silver Screeners, and sometimes attendee of my film talks. From one cinephile to another, Ed, Mary, thank you. And from across the Atlantic and deep into Europe, Italy to be exact, is DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast, which he co-hosts with his friends Rachel and Zan. They cover each of the Best Picture winners in chronological order in their run of episodes, and each one is always a deep dive into the background and content. Their most recent was 1996's The English Patient. Nick, you're the man. And offering her answer to the trivia question from two episodes ago on Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash and Reese Witherspoon as June in 2005's Walk the Line is a new trivia player, Nikki W. Great to get your response, Nikki. And thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, no time like the present. Join the trivia. It is easy, fun, and free. What more could you want? And you can begin with this episode's question. As was said earlier, Michelle Williams is currently up for Best Leading Actress for The Fablemans, her fifth Oscar nomination. Name the 2005 film that got her her first Oscar nod, this one for Supporting Actress. It was for a groundbreaking dramatic film about two cowboys played by Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, who fall in love with each other but go on to marry women and attempt to become traditional family men. Michelle Williams plays Alma, the wife of Heath Ledger's character, Enos Del Mar. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you're listening to, just hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that does it for episode 80. As I say at the conclusion every time, big thanks once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. 
Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility on these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it, which means I can keep making a better show for you. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Marilyn Monroe herself, bidding us all a lovely day until we meet again in episode 81. The deedly 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 dum. Boop boopy doop.